Chapter 3. Baptisms The next elementary doctrine mentioned in Hebrews is instruction about baptisms. Baptisms in Scripture are administrative processes of change. They require an administrator, one who is different from the believer undergoing the changes. Each baptism affects the position of the believer with respect to the heavenly realms and the person's own destiny, the body of Christ, and the person's positioning or relative maturity as a son of God making instruction about baptisms a vitally important point of reference as these changes are administered. Scripture contains four distinct baptisms. Baptism in water, see Romans 6, 1-2. The baptism of or with the Spirit, see Luke 3.16 or Acts 1.5. The baptism by the Spirit, see 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. And the baptism of fire, also known as the baptism of suffering. See Luke 3.16, 1 Corinthians 3.13, or Acts 2, verse 3. With respect to each other, there is not a specific chronological order to the baptisms. They administer change in the life of a person, beginning from a newborn believer and through the stages of maturity. Accordingly, the need for each baptism depends upon the state of the individual. As an elementary doctrine, instruction about baptisms is a necessary foundation for stewarding an individual's maturity in Christ and participating in the maturing and functioning corporately of the body of Christ. Order of Baptisms Baptisms bring change from one condition to another through different stages of a person's life. These stages occur from person to person variously. There is no set way by which each person comes to Christ, and each person has a unique calling, is a specialized part of the body of Christ, and is brought to maturity through trials that complement the person's identity in Christ. Stages of believers' lives are not identical, and neither are the baptism's administrations of change. The order in which a person experiences each of the four baptisms follows the spiritual condition of the individual. In Scripture, some were first baptized with the Holy Spirit before they were baptized in water. Others were first baptized with water, followed by the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of fire is administered at different times in the life of a believer and is associated with growth and progress towards spiritual maturity. The remaining baptism, the baptism by the Spirit, is the assembling of all believers into one body and occurs when the person is born again of the Spirit. The circumstances of a person's life determine the changes required through the stages of maturity. God enjoins the spiritual process according to an individual's heart and circumstances. Examples of this order abound throughout Jesus' ministry. The story of Zacchaeus is one illustration. In Luke 19, 3-9, we read, Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once, and he welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this, and they began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up, and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay him back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. Jesus engaged Zacchaeus from the point where he met Zacchaeus in the tree. He discerned from Zacchaeus climbing into the tree that he had already repented of his way of life. A man of small stature, 
who was also a member of the hated tax-collecting profession, would not normally have exposed himself to the ridicule of the crowd by climbing up into a tree. His desire to see the Lord was greater than his fear of ridicule. From this act, one could conclude properly that Zacchaeus had already repented. Accordingly, Jesus simply invited Zacchaeus to lunch at the tax collector's house. Jesus operated by discerning people's hearts and showing them the love of the Father based upon their unique needs. Typically, repentance is the first step toward sonship, but in this story, there's no reference to any process of Zacchaeus' repentance or confession. There was no need for Zacchaeus to verbalize the active condition of his heart. The evidence became apparent when he offered to refund four times the monies that he had taken unjustly. The Lord's actions signify that Zacchaeus' sins were already forgiven. This pattern models the need for discernment to show a person the Father's love according to his or her unique circumstances. Discerning people's hearts and circumstances as Jesus did precludes religious formulae for baptisms and their administrations. All the baptisms are necessary for every believer. However, the manner of their administration depends on the individual's needs. Discernment of the Spirit, then, is the necessary prerequisite for determining timing of the various baptisms in each person's life. Baptism in Water As the progenitor of mankind, Adam's legacy is an identity separate from God the Father, into which each person is born. A consequence of this identity in Adam is that one is subject to the rule of Satan, the Cosmocrator, and his kingdom, the Cosmos. In the Gospel of the Kingdom of God, the need to change one's location from the kingdom of darkness to the rule of Christ is the central message. Before one can come under Christ's rule as a citizen of the kingdom of God, the person must be separated from the identity in Adam and the enemy's authority. This separation occurs with the death of that identity and the birth of a new creation. Water baptism is an important part of this process. Removing the old identity and being adopted into the kingdom of heaven involves a person's symbolic death, burial, and resurrection. We read in Romans 6, 1-7, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with Him, like this, in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Specifically, baptism in water represents a burial. Repentance precedes water baptism because repentance represents death in the process. Repentance results in a changed mindset from the individual's innate desire to control all aspects of his or her own life. Through repentance, the individual sacrifices the imperatives of self-provision and protection that are the legacy of an identity in Adam. Fundamentally, repentance changes the sovereignty that governs one's life. Prior to accepting Christ's sovereignty, one is governed by self-originating imperatives, subjugating a person to the rule of lusts, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These lusts, in turn, provide a means for Satan to establish control over the person's life. Through repentance, a person migrates from the rule of self and Satan to the rule of Christ and begins to transfer from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of heaven. Water baptism is a burial of the old self, which is followed by one's resurrection as a new creation. 
If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. When one repents, is buried, and then is raised as a new creation, that person is removed from the jurisdiction and control of the kingdom of darkness. The person is instead adopted as a child of God, a son and an heir of the kingdom of God. This adoption places the individual under the rule of Jesus Christ, the King. The importance of water baptism is the declaration to the heavens that the new creation is not subject to the enemy's accusations of sin. There is an entire powerful kingdom arrayed in opposition to Christ and his kingdom. The enemy employs false accusations presented as truth against those born again and adopted into the kingdom of heaven. Even when he no longer has control over a person, the enemy will still seek to reassert influence over that person's life. He does this by attempting to define the person by his or her previous sinful nature before being raised as a new creation. These attacks are against the mind of the human soul. A person may be, in one's mind, a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. The enemy selects moments of weakness when a person thinks or acts in a manner similar to the person's previous life. These false accusations take on the appearance of truth because they're typically timed to exploit some occasion of weakness or sin. Acquiescence to the lie that one's life before Christ bears any influence on Christ's sovereignty over the person or God's love for his children leaves that person open to further demonic influence. In these attacks, only the truth regarding the sovereignty over a person's life restrains the enemy. The truth is that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 17-19 and verse 21. Everyone belongs to either the kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness, and is therefore subject to Christ's sovereignty, or Satan's. Those who have not been raised as a new creation are subject to the rulers of the darkness of this world. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That comes from Ephesians 2, 1-6. Now this makes one vulnerable to the accusations that the enemy brings. But there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Water baptism is a declaration that the person being baptized is under the rule of Christ. Through the act of baptism, the person is dead and buried. The only way forward is through resurrection. The person coming through this process begins a new life as a resurrected being in a new creation. There is no truth in any condemnation of sin rooted in the old life. And through the continual process of repentance and the renewing of the mind, a person is freed from the consequences of sin. There are times when water baptism is appropriate for a believer who has already repented and received the Holy Spirit. 
If the believer struggles with the accusations of thoughts or behaviors that come from the person's old life, or if the person struggles to believe consistently that the old is gone and the new has come, that person should consider being baptized in water. This baptism, in order to simulate burial, should be by immersion, and it should be administered only to an adult who is capable of choosing to be baptized and distinguishing between truth and error. Water baptisms declare to the heavenly realms that the person baptized has died to the old self and has been buried, negating the enemy's authority in any aspect of the person's life from that point forward. Memories and other familiarities with the old life do not amount to a reconnection to that life and are invalid bases for condemnation from the enemy. The person who now lives is a new creation, subject only to the authority of Christ. Water baptism establishes by symbolic burial that the believer has chosen consciously to come under the rule of Christ. The like figure whereunto every baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Having repented, been buried, and been resurrected from the dead, a person leaves behind the kingdom of darkness, Satan's rule, and the state of death that is separation from God. Baptism in water, generally, should occur as part of the process by which a person is translated into the kingdom of heaven. This process begins with repentance, in which a person dies to his or her identity in Adam, and it includes the symbolic water baptism performed person to person. Having made a conscious decision, called repentance, each person has an advocate in Christ to establish the fact that they are free from condemnation before God. The process culminates with one's resurrection as a new creation, confirmation of one's identity, and being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, though symbolic, water baptism is a necessary foundation for one's introduction into the kingdom of heaven and for stewarding the growth and maturity of the children of God. Baptism of the Spirit The previous section on water baptism discussed the process of being reborn as a new creation. As with any new birth, there is a process of maturing. This deliberate process brings a person through various stages of maturity, from a newborn to a son of God who is fit to represent his father. The Holy Spirit equips a person with the gifts necessary to succeed at whatever level of representation the person occupies at any given stage. God intends to bring everyone whom he receives as a son to maturity so that they may fulfill the destiny for which he created them. God designed each person uniquely to display some facet of his nature in the earth and the baptism of the Spirit confers the requisite power for this calling as a son of God. The baptism of the Spirit is a baptism of power, and it accompanies the transition one makes from being an orphan to becoming a son of God. This distribution of power comes in the form of spiritual gifts. Paul confirmed that the gifts of the Spirit, though varying in function, serve a unified goal. In 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7, it says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now, for each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The common good, as Paul names it, is the singular intent of God embodied in the Spirit, accomplished uniquely through each Son of God and corporately through the body of Christ. Christ endows each believer with his power and authority in a manner that will allow the person to represent Christ uniquely and fully as a member of the corpus. God's original intent for mankind will be made complete through the body of Christ, 
And to that end, Christ claimed plenary authority, declaring, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And Christ gives his power over to his corporate body through the Holy Spirit. When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine, and that is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. And that's John sixteen thirteen through 15 There is no other way to receive the power of Christ than through his delegate, the Holy Spirit. Christ appended to his declaration of complete power and authority the Great Commission to his disciples. He fully intended to support these activities with power. Otherwise, the gospel they preached would yield no change among mankind. There's no other way to accomplish the things of God than with the power of Christ. Christ baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit administrates his power. Christ established his kingdom and made us its ambassadors. Christ baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit administrates Christ's power. Christ established his kingdom and made us its ambassadors. The authoritative foundation of his kingdom recognizes a grant of authority from the Father. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Our power to act as ambassadors of this kingdom and as representatives of the person of God himself comes from this source of authority. We are introduced to this authority by the baptism of the Spirit. Unlike water baptism, which is administered by one person to another, the baptism of the Spirit is exclusively administered by Christ himself since he is the only one capable of imparting divine authority to his representatives. No one was ever baptized in the Spirit until Jesus returned to heaven. John the Baptist prophesied of Christ, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. After Jesus was resurrected, before ascending to heaven, He referenced John's prophetic declaration, commanding the apostles to abide in Jerusalem, saying, Wait for the gift that my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The first instance of this baptism took place on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus returned to heaven. The baptism of the Spirit is for empowerment. The baptism of the Spirit is not just for the impartation of gifts of power, but an enabling power towards specific ends. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus not only told his disciples that they would receive power, but said that they would be his witnesses in the earth. Power is meant to enable functioning. We are commissioned to continue Christ's work on the earth. Just as he was empowered to represent the Father, we are also empowered by the same means to continue the same work. However, whether by religious prejudice or simply lack of proper information, the individual may reject the power of the Spirit. For example, religious groups who believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit may, on the basis of theological bias, limit the activities of the Spirit. Some groups reject healing or tongues or various other manifestations of the Spirit's power. However, Whenever the Holy Spirit is present in a person, he comes with all that he is, including the ability to distribute endowments of the power of Christ, sufficient to enable the person to fulfill a divine calling. 
It is a common phenomenon to discover groups of people who believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but who lack any significant empowerment. In such cases, power to accomplish religious objectives comes from the group, while at the same time they lack any divine reference or supernatural character. Such groups rely upon the goodwill of the people, and the leaders spend most of their time building consensus and stirring up the people to participate on the basis of duty and human goodwill. Such efforts appeal to the soul, and they lack the characteristics of the divine intervention. When, however, people are open to being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, they may be empowered by the authority of Christ. Gifts of the Spirit match not only one's level of representation, but also his or her unique commission. Christ grants sufficient power and authority to accomplish all that he intends. Gifts of the Spirit result also in a cultural change from an orphan to a son. This opens the way for a maturity that corresponds to the changing stages of sonship. As one grows from the stage of an infant to a fully mature son, greater power and authority are conferred upon the person together with greater responsibility. Paul instructed people to eagerly desire the greater gifts, because this is the natural and intended progression for every son of God. The Administrations of the Holy Spirit Power derived from the baptism of the Spirit, falls into three basic categories of gifts, which the Spirit administers for different purposes. These forms of gifts are 1. Administrations of power through sudden appearances, phaneros, such as in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, or 2. Establishments through supernatural gifts of power, pneumatic charismata. For some examples, you can look in Romans 1, 11, or 1 Corinthians 12, 6 through 11, and three, grants of authority to establish the government of the kingdom of heaven, domas. For an example of that, see Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Each administration of power has a distinct function to accomplish Christ's purposes through the individual and for the corporate body. Phaneros, the Holy Spirit's spontaneous administrations of power, is meant to change the environment into which Christ is actively inserting his purposes. For example, preceding the day of Pentecost, described in Acts chapter 2, was the execution of the Son of God through a collaboration of Jewish and Roman authorities, with the general populace's encouragement. Laying this accusation on the population, Peter said, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. That's found in Acts 22b and 23. Peter's charge describes Jesus' execution as an extreme act of rejecting God. Crucifying Jesus demonstrated the people's depravity and departure from God, having become so entrenched in their hostilities as to ignore God's accreditation of Jesus. These people were unlikely to receive any new initiatives from God unless God himself changed the environment into which he was placing the corporate son. God acted through spontaneous, supernatural power, and the result was immediate change. Phaneros gifts are spontaneous demonstrations of power that bring immediate change. Pneumatic charismata are some of the longer-term effects of the baptism of the Spirit manifested consistently through the impartation of enablements. In 1 Corinthians 12, 8-11, we read, To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, 
to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He gives them to each one just as He determines. These gifts relate to the way God meant to live through each person. This category of gifting is described as gifts of helps, and whereas an individual may possess extremely strong manifestations of some gifts, all the gifts in this category are available to each person in a level commensurate with their calling. People will often exhibit an innate propensity for certain aspects of a gift because it is part of who that person is meant to be or become. All believers possess one or more of these spiritual gifts. If any gift within this context is lacking in support of one's calling, one should earnestly desire that gift and should ask for an endowment of it. It's important to distinguish between gifts of the Spirit and a person's calling. A calling is the destiny that God has assigned to each person whereas a gift is the enablement of that calling. The full expression and power of these gifts, however, cannot be expressed absent the baptism of the Spirit. Pneumatic charismata are gifts of enablement, operating in different people differently. Each gift's function and expression through a person depends on that person's calling. For example, there are an array of styles and applications to the gift of prophecy. Some may have prophetic visions or dreams, while others just have a word from the Lord. Still others may have insight through particular mediums, such as numerical emphases. Adding further variety to each gift is that, apart from the form, the substance of each person's gift is unique to that person. Some may see the unfolding of future events. Others may have words of personal prophecy. And still others may have the prophetic gift of interpreting the meaning of events. Both the form and the content are enablements of the individual's specific calling. The third administration of the Holy Spirit is a distribution of gifts of government, or domus. While every person has a calling and receives a distribution of enablements for that calling, gifts of government are much more limited distribution. The reason, simply, is that not everyone is called to function governmentally in one of these gifts. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and to some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's Ephesians 4, 11-13. God has given the gifts to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to establish the order of his kingdom on the earth. Although not all people are called to one of these gifts, governmentally, each of these gifts is meant to impart aspects of that gift to the whole body of Christ. For example, contact with someone who is an apostle should impart an administration of order together with an expectation of receiving revelation of mysteries, which describes the apostolic gift, but not the specific calling of any apostle. This impartation produces a mindset of order consistent with the government of God in each person who receives it allowing others to fit easily in their place in the kingdom's order. These Doma gifts are for the equipping of the saints and the maturing of the body of Christ. The alternative to the proper functioning of these gifts is to be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. The baptism of the Spirit introduces the believer to the supernatural reality of the power of God. When a person experiences the baptism of the Spirit, 
that person is transported from the natural world into some immediate contact with the reality of the spirit, bringing forth these gifts. Whereas pneumatic charismata are for the enabling of a person's destiny, doma gifts are for the proper functioning of the kingdom of God and the maturing of the body of Christ. Each administration of Christ's power serves a specific purpose. Repentance and the Baptism of the Spirit One cannot experience the power of the Holy Spirit significantly while the mindset of a person's soul prevails, defining the person's reality. Gifts of the Spirit do not function independently of the Spirit of God. Thus, when a person's soul determines one's thoughts and actions in a certain area, it hinders the Spirit in leading the person through communion with the person's Spirit. Therefore, to function fully in the gifts that result from this baptism, a person must engage the process for his or her spirit's dominance, that is, repentance from acts that lead to death. The soul helps translate the will of a person's spirit, governed entirely by the Spirit of God, into the natural world, but the soul cannot empower any action beyond that which a person is physically capable. The soul, supported by the orphan's culture into which each person is born, rejects the rule of the Holy Spirit and therefore fights with the human spirit for control over the person. When the soul is in control, all of the person's actions are focused on self-provision and protection, the imperatives of that default culture. The Holy Spirit is then unable to operate fully through that person. Therefore, while the baptism of the Spirit confers power, that power is enabled only when the human spirit is in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Where a person's mind is preoccupied with provision and protection, the person is limited in the resources to achieve those ends to his or her own ingenuity and craft. Scripture identifies this concept. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. God was identifying mankind's condition when humans no longer saw themselves as spirit clothed in flesh, but only as flesh that was made from dust. This changed the economy by which people lived. With their changed perception, their provision would only come from labor. This was the natural consequence of mankind's loss of identity as sons of God, operating only within the culture of the orphan until Jesus restored mankind's original relationship to God. When a person represents God as a son, the resources of his kingdom and the economy of the Spirit are available to achieve the purposes for the person's representation. When the Spirit imparts the power of Christ to a person, the person becomes able to function as a son of God. But it is impossible for someone to represent God utilizing the strength of one's soul, because the soul cannot adequately define or support the purposes for one's sonship. Repentance and the renewing of the mind is a necessary foundation for the activities of the Spirit in the life of a believer. The change of mindsets from orphan to son results also in a change of purpose. When a person no longer sees himself as fatherless, the Spirit may work to free him from an orphan's imperatives, and he can take up representation of his father. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit will resist the use of his power through the person. Though the person remains saved, there will be a pervasive state of powerlessness, leaving one susceptible to the enemy's attacks. The baptism of the Spirit confers all of the requisite empowerment to represent the Father and to radiate his glory. The Baptism of the Spirit of Sonship Typically, a fundamentally different view of one's identity accompanies this baptism of power with the Spirit. Because spiritual gifts follow one's calling, the person becomes aware of the basis for his or her calling, that the person has changed from being a servant to becoming a son. 
The calling of a son is to represent the interests of the Father in the earth. One who has experienced the baptism of the Spirit, but who continues to harbor the orphan or servant mindset, may desire to utilize spiritual gifts in furtherance of personal goals. The servant mindset seeks to please God through some work, and the person mistakenly will believe that spiritual gifts are either tools to serve these goals or a reward for good performance. This mistake comes from an erroneous view of mankind's relationship to God. Whereas the servant believes in a quid pro quo relationship, I get something for something else, God created people and placed them in the earth as his sons for the specific purpose of showing his invisible qualities. The Spirit of God does not typically function to empower an individual's own choices and plans. The Spirit may show the goodness of God to others through one who has not yet changed from that default orphan culture, but eventually the individual must decide to change or face the inevitable consequences of choosing to serve his or her personal interests, usually the decline of power and calling, and potentially exposure as one who is serving personal interests. If the person is unaware of the mindset fueling the self-provision and protection that would attempt to usurp spiritual gifts for personal use, the result often is the person's frustration or doubt that spiritual gifts are even real. This is one area in which a spiritual father can help identify the cause of frustration and help the person overcome the default orphan culture motivating that person towards self-interest. A spiritual father helps one understand what it means to be a son to a loving father. The culture of a son that develops from this relationship will be supported by the Spirit. The house of God is built upon the love of the father for the son and the inherent trust of the father by the son, allowing the son to represent the father's qualities in all things. This order enables the gifts of the Spirit to function fully within an individual because it instills the culture of a son and the representation of the father in the person. Since the son is assured of his provision and protection by his father, there's no need to try to manipulate the power and authority that result from the baptism of the Holy Spirit in furtherance of the basic survival imperatives. Jesus' instructions are to avoid such distractions. Therefore I will tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body or what you'll wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith! So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That's Matthew six twenty-five through 33 The baptism of the Spirit is a baptism designed to empower mankind's original purpose, displaying the goodness of God the Father uniquely through the individual and fully through the corporate body of Christ. Baptism by the Spirit For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. 1 Corinthians 12.13 The Holy Spirit integrates the newly born-again person into the body of Christ as a unique part of the body, 
Being fit into the body changes the person's identity from one defined by talents, occupations, or accomplishments to one whom God defined uniquely for that person before he or she was born, and an identity that, when revealed fully, will perfectly display an aspect of God's character. The body of Christ is a reference to the corporate Son whose purpose is to completely display the fullness of God in the earth. The baptism by the Spirit is one of the Holy Spirit's tasks, by which he assembles people into the body of Christ according to God's original intent both for the corporate Son and for each individual comprised within it. The Holy Spirit is familiar with God's original intent for the creation of every person. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Holy Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. That's 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9b-11. through 11. Through the baptism by the Spirit, a person becomes fitly joined into the corporate Christ. This baptism is integral to the process that reveals the believer's calling, empowerment, and way of life as a son of God. When one is born again, the Holy Spirit works to restore that person's spirit to preeminence over the person's soul, so that the influence of the Spirit replaces that of the person's soul in governing the person's thoughts and actions. This process reconnects the spirit of man to the Spirit of God and restores access to the mind of God, enabling the person to engage this new way of life. The person is born again to be made a son of God. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit, who lives in you. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That's Romans 8, 11, and 14-16. And Jesus taught, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Each one who is born again of the Spirit walks in the empowerment of the Spirit individually and is assembled by the Holy Spirit into an orderly functioning corporate entity. This baptism occurs at the same time the Holy Spirit enters a person. The individual is then assembled as part of the corporate expression of God now available in the world, the body of Christ. The body of Christ is a spiritual entity composed of human spirits assembled by the Holy Spirit into one corporate whole. Jesus once presented this whole on the earth in the body of one man. His was an accurate and exact representation of the character of God. Jesus was the anointed one because the spirit within him was unique. Although every human being has a spirit that is capable of putting some aspect of God on display, Jesus was given the role of fully representing the nature of God. The spirit that existed within the man, Jesus, that is capable of this function is known as the Christ. Upon Jesus' resurrection, the Spirit of Christ began to receive and assemble all spirits returning to God into one corporate whole, continuing Jesus' work on the earth. No one alone can continue this work. Christ works through all the bodies of persons whose spirits have been assembled into this one spirit. Paul emphasized the functioning of the corporate man as the accurate representation of God's divine nature. The body is a unit. Though it's made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. And so it is with Christ. 
Now, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. That's in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, 14, 20, and 27. Each part is important, but the fullness of Christ is presented again in the earth only through the corporate functioning. Some have overemphasized the individual parts of the body and the impact of their functions. Assigning such importance to an individual or a certain gift is common because to some this practice provides guidance for how each person should live his or her life, being detached from the relationships within the body. This emphasis has led to a religious culture that has established a hierarchy of values assigned to spiritual gifts. The result is arbitrarily exalted statuses of persons who practice certain gifts. And entire ministries have been formed largely around leaders functioning expertly in certain highly valued pneumatic charismata. However, the image of the corporate sun as a body with many parts should define the emphasis of how all believers are meant to relate to one another. No part of a human body defines any particular calling attributed to the whole, no matter how effectively it functions. In a similar way, the purpose of the whole body of Christ is not attributed to or expressed entirely by the functioning of individual parts. The parts are incapable by themselves of exactly representing the divine nature of God in a manner after Jesus' example or in the continuing corporate expression in the body of Christ. While it is necessary that the parts function well, only their assembled state contains the continuation of the works of Christ. The baptism by the Spirit takes a person whose identity was defined by his or her own actions, translates them into the body of Christ, giving that person an identity that is the full expression of who that person is made to be, and gives further depth to a person's relationship to God as Father. Commonly, this change is inconsistent with one's present way of life. The change of one's identity not only requires a changed mindset, but often a change of lifestyle as well. The laying down of one's identity and purpose in order to accommodate God's will is a living sacrifice. The challenges to one's present circumstances that require change may be helpfully discerned by a spiritual father. When one is born again, he is born into the family of God as a son. However, the culture of his soul is still intact, and although he has been spiritually reconciled, he naturally understands the relationship through the culture of an orphan. He has been repatriated to God the Father and has access to the resources of the great house of God, yet he still views himself through the filters of his native culture. In order for him to transition to the culture of a son, he must be tutored and disciplined in the culture of heaven. This task is assigned to a spiritual father. A father who loves this way can help identify the time for such change and support the individual through the inevitable challenges. The Baptism of Fire, or Suffering Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith You can see Hebrews 12.2 for more information on that administers the refining fire of discipline and suffering to produce sons of God who are fit to represent their Father. Suffering refines a believer in specific ways, which are necessary for the person to mature. Specifically, this baptism helps to transfer control of the person from the soul to the spirit, Suffering exposes the soul's vulnerability and shatters the false perception of control over the person's life. Suffering is experienced when the soul perceives that its view of reality is shifting from a basis of reason to one of revelation. The soul may control the process of reason and the decisions that come from it, but it is incapable of influencing the substance of revelation.
The corresponding vulnerability makes the human feel adrift and at the mercy of the unknown. And this loss of control is one of the human's greatest fears. But it is necessary to allow one's spirit to part the veil of the apparent loss of control and return to the reality of the spirit and the provision and protection of the kingdom of God. Exposing the soul elevates the mindset of one's spirit over the person and further establishes the individual as a son of God, since a son is defined as one with whose spirit the Holy Spirit fellowships. In wrestling away the soul's strongholds over various areas of one's life, the baptism of fire produces a critical transition towards raising mature sons. In Hebrews 12, 5b-8, through 8, we read, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons, huyas, of God. The baptism of fire is critical to the process of being led by the Spirit, and therefore becoming a mature son who can represent the Father. To be led by the Spirit, a person must be saved from the reality created when Adam first sinned, separating himself from God. This separation awakened the soul of man, which is the seat of man's independence from God. When the eyes of the soul were opened, man's view of himself and his purpose in creation underwent a complete change. He transitioned from being a son to becoming fatherless. And in that transition, he lost the vision of himself as being spirit, like his father, and saw himself as flesh. Every person must be saved from the dominance of the soul, which conflicts with being led by the spirit. Christ accomplishes this saving of the soul through suffering and discipline, the baptism of fire. A believer cannot reach the maturity by which he or she is capable of, which is representing the Father, exactly, without suffering that is discipline. The baptism of fire is an area of every believer's life in which he or she will need help through the trials. There's an order that God has given that allows every believer to grow through suffering. A spiritual father is key to help interpret a person's trials and sufferings and provide an anchor for that person keeping the person focused on Christ's purpose for this particular time in his or her life and keeping the person from being completely overwhelmed by this process of refinement. The baptism of fire is not a singular event in the life of a believer, but occurs numerous times throughout the stages of one's maturity. It's administered on an individual basis depending on individual circumstances. The kind, intensity, and duration depend on the individual's present state and calling as the Son of God. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Progressive suffering, administered by Christ, is consistent with the degree of change required in each stage of a believer's life. Even Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he had suffered, and, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designed by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This time of perfection took place during the 18 years of Jesus' life, mostly unaccounted for in Scripture. From his beginning of being about his father's business as a child, during which time Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, leading up to his presentation to the world as the Son of God. The time of Jesus' preparation shows both the methodology, suffering, and the goal, increased wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man, of the baptism of fire.
The baptism of fire is inseparable from the process of growing to maturity. The more mature one becomes, the greater the wisdom and insight that the Spirit of God imparts to the individual. One cannot assume the responsibilities of an ambassador for the kingdom of God unless that person has been prepared for that role. Peter taught in 1 Peter 4, 12-16, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial that you're suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Before one may be put on display as a mature son, that person will become repetitively familiar with suffering. These baptisms form a necessary process in maturing the sons of God. To represent the Father, one must be born again, a process beginning in the act of repentance and symbolized in part through the water baptism. One must be empowered with the Holy Spirit so that Christ may live through that person, accomplished by Christ through the baptism of the Spirit. One must be accurately positioned in the body of Christ, accomplished by the Holy Spirit through the baptism by the Spirit, and one must be led by the Spirit, accompanied by Christ through the baptism of fire. These baptisms, or their effects, are, in some ways, automatic administrations in the life of a believer. As long as one chooses Christ and is able to continually repent and renew his mind, the person is not only a son of God, but God also will be steadfast in equipping the person, giving him or her a place as a son of God, and undertaking the necessary training to mature the person through the stages of maturity for a son. There are, however, other administrations in the house of God put in place both for the proper functioning of the house and for the maturing of its son. The laying on of hands translates the stages of maturity into a familial setting. There are, however, other administrations in the house of God put in place both for the proper functioning of the house and for the maturing of its sons. The laying on of hands translates the stages of maturity into a familial setting. Not only does the name of the doctrine imply close, intimate relationships, but its function is necessary for the speed and development of a culture that belongs to the family of God.